0: Well, this morning we are continuing in our series called Made Alive, The Journey from Death to Life, where we are looking at this letter uh, that this man named Paul wrote to this church in this city called Ephesus, and sometimes we refer to this book as the book of Ephesians. Uh, And this morning, we're going to talk about uh, unity. Last week, we began kind of talking about how in this series, we're going to be looking at the themes of this book, and in particular, what it looks like, as Paul says, to be made alive in Christ, what it looks like to go from a life of death and destruction and chaos and sin to a life of life, and life that Jesus gave us, not just for this life, uh, but for the next. Uh, But this morning, we're going to talk about unity, because... Unity is arguably one of the most important things that Jesus stressed throughout his time here on earth. And I honestly get it. Because there is nothing sweeter in my life than when my two sons, Gideon and Silas, get along. Yes, there are those moments, right, as a parent, where things are too quiet. And you're worried. And you have to peek, right? And then there's the dance where you're like leaning around the corner trying to see... And if they make eye contact with you, it's over. The, 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 the beautiful moment has passed. But every once in a while, it's sort of like seeing the northern lights. It's like seeing, you know, an eclipse or, or, or a certain sort of shooting stars. Your kids get along, and it's like, this is the greatest moment of my life. I could cry right now. But I get it. There's something about a parent, um, there's something that we desire for our kids to have a sense, not just when they're little to play, but to have a sense of unity and love and desire to be together. And when they don't, it, it breaks our heart. And I get it. I, I was thinking about it. My, um, my boys had their opening day of T-ball yesterday, and then afterwards they um, got to go stay the night at grandparents. And so I, I, whenever my, my boys go stay the night at like grandparents, we always have to have the pep talks of certain things. And, you know, one of the big things is always, um, my pep talk is a little bit different than what mine was as a kid. My dad, who, by the way, is a pastor, um, my brothers and I remember these famous things he would always say whenever he was like leaving the house or we were going to someone's house. He would say, Um, No smoking, drinking, gambling, or wild women. Now, I am really glad that the internet was not as much of a thing to try to Google search any of those things when I was really little. Because as like a four-year-old, I had questions. What does this mean? And I think they are very glad that I was never brave or stupid enough to ask like a teacher or anything. Never walked to anyone's house and asked their mom, are you a wild woman? My dad wants to know. Could've created some interesting chaos. But I, you know, usually the, the conversation that I have with my boys and that really my parents would have with me and my, my brothers was this idea of like, get along. Like be kind to one another, figure it out, don't be jerks, no black eyes, no bloody noses, things of that nature. Because we understand that there is something about family, there is something uh, that, that is sacred about wanting it to be close. And as a pastor and as a father, I totally get, as I've sat with people going through conflict, especially within families, in in close relationships, how much it hurts when there is strain or there is a, a rip in the fabric of relationship. I get it, how much it just feels like a knife getting stuck into you and continually just or like paper cuts and then you cut lemons, right? You know, it stings. And so this morning, we're going to talk about this and, and what, um, what, what God has to say through the Apostle Paul about this idea of unity. Because at the forefront, one of these things we have to understand about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that the gospel is for everybody, and it invites everybody, and it has the power to unite everybody. We live in a world that is full of division and polarization. We live in a world where oftentimes, regardless of the issue, we kind of draw up certain lines. You are either this way or you are that way. We have thrown out the idea of nuance and conversation and civility, right? Because if you're not with us, you're against us. If you don't look like this, think like this, vote like this, act like this, you are. And yet, The issue that is terrible is it would be one thing to just talk about the world in general about that, but it grieves my heart, especially as I've seen in the last five years or so, how much that is true of the church, of God's people, of people who uh, believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believe in his words of unity and hope and love, and yet oftentimes we don't practice it. And so I want to talk about what, what do we do with this. In, in Ephesians uh, chapter four, we get kind of this big groundwork for part of Jesus' mission in coming to the world. It says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ appropriated it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, Bible study tip. If you see a word continually pop up, I know this is crazy, right? It's important. If you noticed in there, there was this constant bringing back to this idea of oneness, Over and over again, one faith, one spirit, one hope, one baptism, all of this. When Paul is writing, he's writing to a group of people whom some come from a background of being um, Jewish descent. They, They come from this line of people who had this special relationship with God. And there was this covenantal promise relationship. And he's also writing to groups of people who would be viewed as what we would call Gentiles. They are people who do not ethnically come from these lines. And he's trying to get them to understand the importance of Jesus' great mission is to unite what felt like two separate groups into one family. And so he stresses over and over again that Jesus is not doing the thing that my mom was very kind and used to do where when we wanted to eat out she would go to like six different places and get all the things that we wanted we're going to one place now we're not going to mcdonald's and burger king we're not going to taco bell and wendy's there is one faith one hope one baptism one spirit there's not the jewish one and the gentile one it's everybody together In the very first chapter of Ephesians, Paul lays out the importance of God's mission from the get-go of what Jesus would do in creating this oneness. He says, in him, this is uh, from chapter 1 starting in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. You see, one of the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the the beauties of God uh, sending his son Jesus into this world and and what he did uh, on the cross and through his resurrection was this idea of bringing together unity of all things, both on heaven and on earth. To bring together both uh, the world that he created, that sin destroyed, and just bringing a sense of harmony and peace because the story of God really starts with him taking in creation chaos of different things and bringing peace and order to it. And when we see the fall or the, the, the sin entering into the world, we begin to see all of that beginning to just sort of be messed up. And really the story of scripture is God's love story of him trying to take the chaos and bringing order back together. You see, Jesus came to bring unity to a divided world. And even though we talk about, as I already have talked about, how we live in a time that, that at least feels more divided than ever, I have to be reminded that if I really believe in who Jesus says he is, I have to get to a place of believing that God could even unite the world that we're in today that I can't lose hope in this fact that we will never see a sense of unity. And in particular, for the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, I have to believe and I have to fight for and I have to work out myself how to live out unity in a world that is screaming for purpose and meaning and hope. But when they look over to the church, they see just more chaos toxicity. They see infighting. They ask the questions, if that's what it's like, I don't know that y'all are doing better than what we are doing. You know, one of the great things that we are called as, 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 as Paul oftentimes referred to us as God's holy people, which means to be set apart, is just this call to look different. You know, one of the things that I love about when we read about the early church is how much it brings together people whom otherwise would have never been together who ethnically are different, who who, who are are different in their socioeconomic status. Yet oftentimes today, one of the things that's difficult within churches, right, is people find churches where people look like them, think like them, vote like them. And again, I'm not saying all of that necessarily is always bad. But unity is something that we have to strive for and believe in that God can bring all of his children who look different, who come from different walks of life and unite them under one spirit and one hope and one baptism and one truth. In chapter 4, Paul uh, lays out kind of this idea, and that's where we're going to spend most of our, our time today, under how do we, as people who desire to be made alive, who want to journey from death to life, how do we begin to actually walk out this idea of unity? And so uh, Paul gives these kind of four things that we're going to focus in on. And so this is what it says at the very beginning of um, chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. It says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, this is Paul speaking, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace now paul lays out four things there that there are kind of these four keys that we're gonna we're gonna dive into this morning um, briefly uh, to kind of this idea of healthy christ-centered community that leads to unity and the four things are humility um, he says gentleness we'll talk a little about that in a moment patience and what i'm calling gracious love and we're going to we're going to look at each of them but i but i want to say this at the forefront because i have to be honest unity is a difficult thing for me because i don't know about y'all but i am naturally fairly selfish i used to think i wasn't and then i got married and i'd sometimes have to share things like french fries and then i thought i got better and then i had kids And I realized how much I like sleep. But unity is difficult because unity is something that requires me to many ways, from a worldly perspective, I have to lose. You know, as I've been thinking about unity in my own life and, and striving for this in the church, one of the things I've come to is, is what I think many of us struggle with, which is this, that, that most of us believe that the solution of um, division is dependent first on the change of others. But I believe Jesus invites his followers to see change starts first with me. More often than not, when I think about the division within our world, especially within the church, is it's very easy for me to start first with, well, if this group of people could just get this going, then we'd be fine. Yet oftentimes I believe that Jesus, who once had this teaching where he talked about dealing with a log in one's own eye before we worry about the speck of dust in someone else's, has something to say about that. And so this morning, I want us to maybe have a posture of, as we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, humility, to maybe even um, think through where we are at ourselves in dealing with others. Now, I want to say at the forefront, um, unity is something that we have to fight for. It will cost you something, and it will be something that will be difficult. And there are moments, there are issues, there are things where... uh, Unity is no longer going to happen, right? There are theological major issues that as followers of Jesus, at some point, we have to depart from relationship with certain people. I got to say that at the forefront, which is a really hard, weird thing, but I'm also going to go ahead and, and say this at the forefront. I believe that many people make mountains out of molehills. And then honestly, if Jesus could just sit and kind of have a cup of coffee with us for for a moment, he might say to us, hey, can I be honest? I think you really want to die on a hill that I don't need you to die on. And on the other end, which this one is the one that, that, that convicts me probably even more so, there are some hills that I would really like you to stand ground at that you're not willing to. Unity is messy, and it's hard. Let's talk about it. It starts first with humility. Paul talks about being completely humble. Humility means not just thinking of yourself less, um, but to think of yourself less often. This idea of humility is this idea of also having a proper understanding of, of, of who you are. It's not thinking any less than who you are, and it's not thinking any more than who you are. It's having this proper understanding of who you are uh, in Christ. But humility is really difficult, right? Because we live in a world that oftentimes rewards um, pride. Think about it. We read in the news about people who are Um, showy and flashy. When I um, follow kind of feeds for different sports things, oftentimes it's not even the best players who sometimes are getting uh, the most kind of press. It's the most interesting and loud players that oftentimes get the most press. Humility is something that um, I wish we could make great again. I wish we could get back to a place where we saw people who were humble and were like, yes, those people are awesome. I wish we had more news stories about humble people. And we, we seek out humility because it's who Jesus is. We follow his example. This is what it says in chapter 4, starting in verse 11. So Christ gave himself, gave the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, and becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. Now, I read that verse because it's incredibly important for us to realize that every single one of us have been given gifts and personality and, and a makeup in which God has created us to fit into his kingdom, into his family, to bring purpose and value and worth. Now, he he names a few of them, right? He names some of these different types of people, that there are people who are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And uh, a different Sunday morning, we would dive into exactly what all of those sort of things mean. But one of the things that I love that it emphasizes is this idea that in Christ, to get the fullness of Christ, there is not a singular type of person, a singular type of gift that is like the most important, best gift, And he's really wanting us to understand this idea that unity does not mean uniformity. That unity is not this idea of just, if we could get everyone to look exactly the same, have the same gifts, have the same uh, perfect little things, that there is some levels of diversity within the gifting and the personalities of who God created us to be. And at the same end, one of the great things about the gospel and one of the most difficult things about the gospel is that it will cost everybody something. Everybody, no matter their family of origin, no matter their background, no matter their gifting, no matter whether they grew up in church all their life or they came later in life, every single one of us will have to die to ourselves so we can gain in Christ to be used by Christ in these manners. To experience the fullness of Christ. And if we are not willing to do that, we're going to struggle. Humility, again, reminds us that someone who has this gift is not greater than anyone else. Just because someone can sing a song or preach a sermon does not make them more important in the kingdom of God. I'll be honest, one of the things that I look forward to in heaven is there's a lot about heaven that, if we're honest, is, is, is more just our own imagination and excitement, which is fine. But in my imagination, in my excitement in heaven, I think sometimes some people think about it like, ooh, I bet there'll be like a special hall of fame for for like the preachers. I don't think so. I hope not. I hope that there's going to be a hall of fame for like the um, Spent the most time in the nursery wiping little kids' butts so people could sit in here. There's going to be someone who's like, did the most landscaping for this sort of thing. Helped the most widows. You know, all of those sort of things. Things that in this world we might say is cool, but if we're honest, we don't really want to do. Because our world drives us to want to be seen and known and and, and appreciated and all these sort of things. And yet in the kingdom, the rewards that I think are greatest in heaven are for the things that are done in secret. Where no one will know. And so we have to work towards humility. But humility also, again, when we begin to see that others have these values and things like that, we begin to realize that maybe our way isn't always the right way. Or the only way. Continuing in chapter 4 in verse 14, this is what Paul says uh, about this idea of of when we begin to realize that maybe there is a a world that we need to broaden our mind to. He says this, uh, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blowing here or there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. What a fun word. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. For him, the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, that was a lot right there. But the basis of what I take away from this is when we begin to be rooted in Christ, be made alive in Christ, we begin to have a little bit more of a firm foundation where we no longer are being tilted this way and that way by different teachings, that we can stand united, that we can understand, okay, here are the majors that I am not moving on, that no one is going to shift me on. But it's also going to give me uh, this, this ability to be able to speak truth in love. I have found so... Many people, which just breaks my heart, would rather ghost a person than have a conversation. Now, I've talked about ghosting in the past. It's, you know, it's, it's the cool kind of young, I, do I feel hip? Teenagers, do I look hip by using that term, right? Am I lit? Is that still a thing? <laughs> but if you don't know what ghosting is, ghosting is essentially, um, yes, I know, I'm cool. Uh, ghosting espe- essentially is this idea that when there is tension within a relationship, I'm just going to be like a ghost and disappear. And I have found, especially within the body of Christ, it has grieved me how many people would rather just leave and not have a conversation, which I think is so destructive to the body of Christ. We have lost the art of being able to have a conversation where we speak truth and love, where we are willing to be able to listen to someone else's perspective. And so much of it is because I think we lack this sense of humility to be willing to say, maybe I could learn something from your perspective. And if I could just urge you, if anything else in this idea of unity, be willing to have a conversation. And come into it not with guns drawn, but with a heart that's open. Not ready to just say whatever you say goes, or I I must believe in your new theology or different understanding about certain topic that's hot topic these days. But to be willing to say, can I just be an adult and have a conversation? To listen and not listen to respond, but listen to understand. Humility. It pushes us to be more like Christ, to see that all people have different values and gifting that God has given us, to see that maybe others have a perspective that I haven't looked at yet, and that might be helpful. Here's the second thing that, that, that Paul gives us. In, in, in this one, I have three different words because sometimes when we look at Scripture, uh, there are words that translate over from the original Greek that are are kind of harder for us to understand. They maybe don't have a perfect word for it. So most of us in our Bibles, we're gonna see be completely, um, be humble and gentle. And this word gentle can really mean meekness, or it also can kind of lean into this idea of self-control. And these are really important uh, because if we want to experience and pursue unity, we have to be willing to walk these out. Every single one of these words are words that most of us do not like. In fact, some of them probably have um, uh, negative connotations. If we're honest, self-control is probably the only word on there that we, we might even see as positive. Because sometimes we don't really want, like, like when I think about my kids, like I don't know that every book is teaching like how to make a meek child. Like that's not a best-selling book that people are looking for. I understand there's the gentle parenting thing, which works for people who have kids who are gentle. Um, I do not. But self-control. Self-control, in a lot of ways, is the word that uh, isn't the actual word, but I think it gets the best idea of it. Uh, you see, honestly, meekness is, is maybe the best word that we understand, and I want to say this at the forefront, which I know is not proper English, but we're going to go with it. Um, meekness ain't weakness. And I know that's not proper English, but, but it's true. Meekness ain't weakness. We see we, meekness oftentimes as feeling like this like, feeble little mouse who's like, Hello, sir, can I have a spot of cheese? Um, Please. But meekness or this gentleness or this self-control that we're talking about is this idea of understanding the proper administration of things like a reaction of anger or things like that. As a parent, I have been doing a lot of this with my boys recently. Where part of parenting I have found, which is painful and tiring, I have to say, is helping your kids understand their emotions and respond to them in healthy ways, and not just like yell at them. That's hard. So with my son Silas, who's four, we do a lot of what we call the reset, which is you know we take him from one room, send him another room. We we try to have a little bit of a conversation as he kind of, and. One of the things that's hard, right, when you talk with a four-year-old sometimes is getting them to understand this idea of like, okay, um, this might be like a one on the scale of annoyance, but I think you've ramped up to about 100 here, right? If you've ever gone to the the doctor's office, they, you know, like, okay, tell me the pain scale. Is it a one? Is it kind of small or manageable? Or is it 10 and you feel like you're going to die? I have found with with kids, right? There are often times where we uh, talk with them about things that are probably a one that they feel like is a hundred, right? You didn't let me play video games, as Silas would say. Um, You didn't let me pick uh, a certain thing. I was not allowed to have ice cream for breakfast. How dare you, Father? And I think this idea of meekness, of gentleness, of self-control is this idea of having a good understanding of how we respond and react to certain things when it comes to um, seeking out unity. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among them, there there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talking, coarse joking, which are all out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this, uh, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such as a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of God. King of Christ and of God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, I, I share this verse that might feel like, "Well, how does that have to do with this idea of of being meek or or, or self controlled or gentle?" And, and I share it all because I think that sometimes we really forget that how we live matters. That we, our lives, we are stewards of our lives. And we talk about stewardship oftentimes with being our, our time, our talents, our treasure. But it is also our activities and our emotions and our responses in our relationships. And it is really important that we, we understand that when he talks about not even a hint of sexual morality or greed or, or gossip, all of these sort of things, These matter. And sometimes we don't think these actually matter or translate into other relationships, but they do matter. And if we are not willing to be people who would allow God to transform us from the inside out, to make us be less greedy, less lustful, less willing to uh, uh, lean into uh, idolatry, things like that, if we're not allowing God to do that, as he said, which is a really difficult verse to, to wrestle with, by the way, that we have no chance at the inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and with God. How we live matters. Again, we do not earn our grace. We do not earn our salvation. But again, the way of love means we have to continue to walk it out with Christ. All right, let me, let me move through, through these last two quickly. Patience. Patience. Patience is one of those things that I think is really difficult because when we talk about patience here, we're not talking about like the, the patience you have to have when you're microwaving something in a minute feels like an hour. Patience is having to do with our patience towards people. And here's the key, in my opinion, to patience. The key to patience is perspective. The key to patience is perspective. I, I believe one of the reasons we have a hard time being patient with others is we have a messed up perspective. And our perspective oftentimes is so self-focused. Think about this when you are in a hurry. Think about the last time you were running late to something. It might have even been here. Why are these people in front of me right now? How dare this car go the speed limit? Do they not know that I am running late because of actions and things that I chose to do? And that translates over to other things, right? But one of the things with our perspective is is that I think when our perspective shifts, we're we're reminded that uh, we have been loved and saved and invited into relationship with Jesus. And if we could just live out of that perspective for our whole life, it's incredible how much more gracious we could be to other people. Because more often than not, the people who drive us crazy, even the people who... um, Know Jesus, who are part of the church, oftentimes the things that are leading them, that, that, that they're doing that are driving us crazy, where we're struggling with patience, oftentimes is something where they're still trying to work out their own salvation. They're still trying to figure out how to live freely as a child of God. And oftentimes we need to learn to just have patience. We need to learn to have the perspective of the fact that God has been incredibly kind and patient to us. And if he can do that for all of humanity, you may be able to do that with Karen. In chapter 4, Paul says this Therefore, each of us must put off falsehood and speak truthful to our neighbors, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not let the devil get a foothold. Again, as he says there, anger is not wrong. There is an appropriate time for anger, right? When there is injustice, when someone is harming someone else, there is an appropriate time for certain responses or anger, things like that. But it is in our anger that if we go too far, we begin to sin. When we stop having patience with others in the same way that God has patience for Uh, He says this, uh, continuing on in chapter 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Again, there's a lot to do with about how we speak, which really matters. And we, if we're honest, kind of stink at that. But only, think about this. This is what's crazy. We're not just talking about, you know, four-letter words here. He says this. But only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. By the way, if you're sharing a prayer request, which is gossip, um, Again, you're supposed to be only saying things which build up others who hear it. And oftentimes, if you're talking about someone, they're not going to hear it in a way that is going to build them up. Helpful tip. It says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. And that is this perspective change. If you believe that Christ has forgiven you, you got to learn to forgive others. It's a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. And it leads us into our last thing that we have to do, which is one of our core values here at South Creek, which is this. We have to seek to be gracious in love. We have to embody this idea of a gracious love, a love that is something we don't control ourselves. It's something that we receive from Christ and give out to others. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way, and I think it's beautiful. He says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He says this, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He said, look at these two groups of people, For once and for all, I'm going to die myself so that they can live united together. And he continues on. He came and he preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequentially, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself. As the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's a long thing to essentially say. You are the temple. The building is not the church, the people are the church. And together, we are called with different gifts as, a, as, as apostles and prophets and evangelists to, to be equipped to do the good works, to go out and do those things. But we are built together to live united and function together. And we need to work at being humble and gentle and patient, united in love So we can go out into a hurting world that is dividing and show them the way. But it's got to start with us first. We've got to learn to have conversations again. We've got to learn to say, let's live together on the major things. Let's stop fighting over things that honestly oftentimes have very little eternal consequences. Because again, we are living in a world that is temporary. And I worry that someday some of us are going to stand before God and he's going to say, hey, wish you wouldn't have spent so much time fighting with people who already know about Jesus when you could have went out and found my lost and hurting children. We've got to learn to play together. We've got to learn to live united. And here's the thing, as, as this theme that we continue to talk about each week, this way of love, it is the path to peace and life it is the only way on which we will experience life and life to its full that we will experience peace the shalom that comes from only the presence of God and it is the only way that we will truly uh, join together people who are lost and broken who are dead in their sin it'll be the only way that they will experience being made alive the band's going to come back out and they're going to sing one last song. Um, But as they do, as we sing this last song, would you be willing to just think through um, if God maybe is speaking to you in a certain way? Maybe there's a relationship you need to seek out and mend. Maybe it's just a relationship with God himself that you need to experience unity with him once more. So would you guys go ahead and stand? um, And as you stand, would you go ahead and uh, bow your heads and close your eyes and and, uh, pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for the fact that you... um, You are the only way that we can truly experience um, unity and wholeness, both in our lives and in our relationships and in the church. Father, we are in a time of history where uh, the world, maybe more than ever, needs a church that is united. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to look across the aisles, to seek out those who maybe think differently or act differently or we just don't know, And Father, would you bring unity to your church once more? And would we be not united on politics or preferences, but would we be united on the powerful name of Jesus Christ? It's his name I pray, amen.